2: It's important to notice when we're too focused on that sense of our bounded, ego based, separate identity. And, you know, to be engaged in a kind of set of practices that can deliver us when we're getting stuck.
3: Hello and welcome to the psychology podcast. In this episode, I talk to law professor and mindfulness leader Rhonda McGee about her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. In this episode, we discuss her innovative approach to healing racial divides using mindfulness. Rhonda argues that when we bring awareness and compassion to ourselves, relationships, and the environment, we invite healing and connection. We also touch on the topics of education, spirituality, liberation, democracy, and community. So without further ado, I bring you Rhonda McGee. Wow, I'm really excited to talk to you today, and I thought we could just dive in because I, you know, it, let's just let's just have an informal chat, you know.
2: <laughs> yes, let's do. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation to have this chat. Um, I'm a fan of your work, and um, really just appreciating what you're offering yeah. right now in the world that needs whew, some, you know, so many different sources of, of support. And I see you as definitely offering that. And I appreciate
3: that very much. You know, thank you so much for saying that. And I feel the same way about you. Uh, your name just kept coming up among so many uh, people that I follow and that I love, like Sharon Salzberg and <laughs> my friend Corey Mascara, and, uh, who are meditators. And uh, your work just kept cropping up. and And I love it. Absolutely love it. So, I, yeah, I thought a really good place to start would be a little bit about your 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 early childhood experiences, since this is the psychology podcast, after all.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. would, would you feel comfortable talking about that a little bit? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, I uh, was born in uh, North Carolina to mm. you know to parents who you know had have their own heritage and legacy in the the soil and social and cultural context of the Southern United States. Mm. I was actually born in North Carolina. My parent, my mother is from North Carolina. My father um, is from the Gulf coast of Mississippi,
1: mm.
2: you know, which um, has some, you know, Biloxi in this part of, of Mississippi is known as a place that has at least some appeal uh, for those who Delight in gambling, I guess, and, um, and just coastal living. But to be a black man growing up in that, um, part of the country was, was, was not so much filled with that. In fact, um, when he was growing up in the, you know, the, the forties and fifties, it would have been illegal for him to enter into the water actually in many parts of the coastline. And so my father actually kind of left Mississippi and joined the Marines during a time of, of war, he served in the Vietnam War, and my mother So did my dad. Had,
3: so did my dad. I wonder if they knew each did, other. <laughs> really?
2: Yeah. Was he? My dad was in the Marines. Oh, the was Marines. Oh,
3: sorry, sorry. No, yeah. he was in the Air Force.
2: In the Air Force, yeah, yeah but still, you know, yeah. I mean, it's service. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, during a time of war. Yeah. So you know, and my mother had you know worked for a shirt factory and done done other kinds of um, you know low skilled working class, um, you know. Employment and none of that, neither of them had gone to college. And so I say all that to say, you know, I'm like so many people in the United States. Um, on the one hand, you know, somebody who's benefited from all of the ways that prior generation or two and more have struggled to open up opportunity more broadly for people mm-hmm. who, who's, whose backgrounds don't afford them a lot of opportunity. We were you know, relatively poor growing up. You know, all of the ways that the history of enslavement and segregation impact of family were present. So Mm -hmm. impoverishment, you know, alcoholism was something that my family experienced and I witnessed. And then also some of the follow-on effects that can happen from that, including physical abuse, domestic violence in my home and And then subsequently, my mother and father divorced married a stepfather who was also another military veteran. Mm -hmm. This time, in fact, the Air Force. And, um, nevertheless, we saw, we saw similar patterns of alcohol abuse and abuse in the household that impacted me as well, directly as well. So, you know, I, you know, I, at the same time, I had the good fortune of being somehow well-suited for, you know, the way we study in public schools. (laughs) And and I say that intentionally. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't other ways we could be doing education that could bring more of us along, but I certainly had the kind of capacity for patience, for, you know, long-term commit, you know, sort of persistence and all of the sorts of things that can coupled when coupled with some kind of ability, which I think we all have to learn, <laughs> um, can make one excel. So school was a place where I actually did find validation and found a relatively safe place for me to to grow and develop. And and certainly without the teachers and the community that I found there and the, you know, the affirmation of my my abilities and my value that I found consistently through my own personal public school experience, mm. I wouldn't be here without all that. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my background.
3: Thank mm-hmm. you so much for sharing that. I hope it wasn't too painful to talk about.
2: Um, no, I, I have uh, thought about it and pra- you know, done some work on this, right? So it's, it's actually not terribly painful, but I and it is something that I think is important for us to look at for all of us because those difficult things, as you know, are part of who and how we are, wherever we are.
3: Absolutely, I was wondering, you know, just personally in school did did you have many experiences of racism that impeded your ability to learn and grow?
2: Well, you know it's a good question because I think it, implicit in that is this question of what do we think of when we think of the term racism. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes so answer that of, question
3: too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Free. Well, we
2: tend to think of it as like these explicit. So we think of racism as like a personal characteristic. We've been sort of mm-hmm. trained. Many of us are working with this broadening of our understanding of what racism might be to include more subtle, systemic, mm-hmm. um, maybe unconscious or less than explicit um manifestations of it. But I think. For many of us of a certain age, we really imbibe this message. And most, I think most of us in the U.S. still today are working with a kind of a core definition of racism that is about, you know, a kind of a personal commitment to an ideology and practices that reflect it. That are committed to an idea of categorized humanity, right? Putting, placing human beings in these categories of race, mm-hmm. being placed in a category ourselves, and then rank ordering groups and therefore individuals who fall within those groups mm-hmm. based on um, notions of implicit values, mm-hmm. culture, sometimes religious, sometimes language. There are lots of different inputs to the ideas we have imbibed about race and racism. Yeah. And so there are many dimensions of that. Of course, there certainly can be this again. The traditional, I think, kind of core paradigm that we still work with is like an individual who is committed to these ideas and pervade, you know, put promulgating them and maybe performing a certain kind of like outsized with the hood and the you know <laughs> the swastikas, maybe. An explicit commitment to these values and ideas is kind of, I think, still the core. Of what we think of when we think of racism and 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 what it looks like, mm-hmm. but of course, more subtle forms and systemic collective forms are the ones that are, you know, the water in which we swim, mm-hmm. the air that we breathe. And so, when I think about your question of like, did racism impact me? I would say that um there are just a lot of ways. <laughs> Well, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, first like, of all, where do I, you I, know, begin? I grew up, exactly <laughs> yeah. like I grew up in desegregating Virginia. I mean, right. North Carolina and Virginia. And I say desegregating just to underscore that it was an active aspect of my experience that we were in process. And I wouldn't say that that process was ever fulfilled. In fact, I, you know, I we could talk about some of the ways that the efforts were dismantled, even in the latter part of my experience of public school mm. in the South. But certainly, you know, I was a child who was bused across town to, ex- to help a- accomplish these goals of a more integrated public school scenario. And, you know, what are the impacts of being a part of that social experience, po- positive and negative? Mm. But what I'll say is one of the things that I saw Certainly most of us who grew up in desegregating circumstances saw, you know, public schools that were very sensitively constructed to maintain appeal to white body families. Mm-hmm. So teaching staffs that were disproportionately white, not integrated in the same way as um, maybe the classrooms even more. So most of my teachers were white and most of, of course, the, the things that we learned, in ways that were not always obvious, were shaped around a kind of white Southern sensibility. That means that certain books were not taught, available. Uh, These were things that I had to find on my own. So for me, racism then showed up in those much more subtle ways of, yeah, of like what was available, what I was able to learn, what I was able to study and what I wasn't, and by whom and you know, with whom, what kinds of teachers. Um, and what kinds of experience, experiences did they bring? But with all of that said, you know, I can think of, and, and I want to say this explicitly, I nevertheless, you know, the teachers, the white body teachers who were there, most of whom in my experience were at least making an effort, you know, to, to do what they came to do, which is to help identify and, you know, move through or support students with, with some potential in the conventional sense. And so, I can certainly think of and have in my like pantheon of teachers that I really appreciate, you know, a lot of white teachers. Mm-hmm. Um who were I can think of, you know, some a couple in particular who were very very instrumental in terms of their manifestation of a, let's say a, some sort of a racial equity commitment such that that whatever they may have been raised with because again these were people who were yeah. Disproportionately raised in the South and with racist ideology and teachings <laughs> having formed them. Many of them, you know, nevertheless were some of my, you know, uh, mentors and, you know, help, help identify opportunities for me and, and so on and so forth. So I think it's, it's not, and then when going to university, it was, I, I would say I saw more explicit examples of racism impacting me. For example, just in my first year at the University of Virginia lovely school, but having examples of things like, you know, um, instructors not having a negative reaction to me wanting to write about, for example, I had a paper topic that I proposed comparing an analysis of segregation in the Southern United States with apartheid in South Africa. Hmm. Today, I don't think people would think of that as like a shocking proposed experiment or, you know, intellectual inquiry. But the particular teacher that I had, a teaching assistant that I had, was just aghast. How could they even be considered even remotely similar? Mm. (laughs) Again, a white bodied male teacher who was just coming from a perspective where something that was normalized in the US as, you know, part of our culture could not possibly be, you know, this was in the eighties when we were in that anti apartheid struggle. It was quite, you know, or, you know, seeing the Seeing apartheid as a certain kind of evil that we needed to all, many of us, you know, who were at all progressive were thinking we must, that's an evil. But on the other hand, Southern segregation, well, there's so many justifications. So that's an example, you know, being sort of having my own education and my intellectual interests sort of uh, filters through that lens of a kind of orientation toward whiteness that I think is a legacy of our you know our racism and our white supremacy. So those are Thank you. you know the more subtle ways. It wasn't until I came to California actually and heard the n-word hurled at me for the first time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh well no. That's once maybe once before that when I was in Richmond Virginia, but San Francisco Richmond Virginia. So it's uh when it comes to those experiences whereby personal racism in the form of you know the the epithets and the you know, the kinds of physical threat. This can happen in Richmond, Virginia or Hampton, Virginia, as well as Half Moon Base, California or San Francisco. This is American culture.
3: Yeah, thank you for all those uh, differentiations and for telling that story. I actually do see value in differentiating between personal racism and systemic racism and acknowledging that both exist in, in lots of complex ways. Um, So I really appreciate you telling that story. Hey everyone, I'm excited to announce that the eight-week online transcend course is back. Become certified in learning the latest science of human potential and learn how to live a more fulfilling, meaningful, creative, and self-actualized life. The course starts March 13th of this year and goes until May 1st. The course includes more than 10 hours of recorded lectures, four live group Q&A sessions with me, four small group sessions with our world-class faculty, a plethora of resources and articles to support your learning, and an exclusive workbook of growth challenges that we think will help you overcome your deepest fears and grow as a whole person. There are even some personalized self-actualization coaching spots with me available as an add-on. Save your spot today by going to transcendcourse.com. That's transcendcourse.com. We have so much fun in this course, and I look forward to welcoming you to be a part of the Transcender community. Okay, now back to the show. When you were young, did you were there any mindfulness gurus that you liked? I'm I'm curious, like when are kind of inroad into mindfulness was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, my bells are ringing. <laughs>
2: um, that was a nice. Sounds actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my coffee cup hit was, kind of was, was like, kind of maybe we should pause. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't. I know there are some, you know, people who grew up with parents who were <laughs> 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 meditating. Not, no. no. Mm. I grew up in a kind of a Southern Christian context. Mm. And uh, so I will say that, you know, a kind of a centering prayer kind of meditation was very. Much a part of, you know, kind of the context within which I grew up. I definitely had a grandmother who was, had been called to the ministry Mm -hmm. herself. And so, what I, as a very little girl, witnessed when I would spend time with my grandmother, which I did fairly frequently, my parents were splitting up. So, we were spending a lot of time there. I'd see my grandmother get up, you know, before dawn. Mm -hmm. Well, before she had to, according to the things she needed to do for others or to make a living and just spend time in what I later learned. Right. First, it was the little girl seeing the light coming up from out from underneath her closed bedroom door and knowing, having been taught that, like, this is grandma's time. Right. For her own cultivation, devotion, devotional practices later learning these this was a time of prayer and centering. Um, she would then follow that with uh, up with often she would come out and we would see her then reading scriptures, more prayer and praise and worship. and then you know from there, getting everybody up and going, you know, feet to getting us fed and getting us off to preschool or wherever we needed to go. And so I definitely saw that kind of devoted, self cultivation practice but of course mm-hmm. it wasn't called mindfulness right and so it wasn't until you know i had gone to university and come out to california and uh, was in between law school and starting my first job as a lawyer mm-hmm. when i just realized i had been studying for so long by then i had also gone into army rtc and pay for school mostly. And also because it's a great way to learn certain things, but not because I'm (laughs) pro-military, let's just say. (laughs) I'm kind of a pacifist, let's just say at this point. But I did do, um, you know, Army ROTC. I studied, you know, undergraduate. I'd done graduate school in sociology and law school. Mm -hmm. And I'd just been very, you know, focused on all these, you know, ways of developing in conventional ways, like so many students and those of us who are trying to make it in the US. And here I was for the first time in a long while, maybe mm-hmm. the first time in my adult life, with having finished one major project, finished taking the bar, my job wasn't gonna start for n- another few mo- couple months. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. I had just been so, you know, <laughs> so trained. My mind had been so trained to be constantly doing. Yeah that I really could barely relax. And um, and it just seemed to me, something inside spoke of a need to like reconnect to some kind of nurturing, restorative way of being because I mean, I just sort of had a sense that this was not a good way to start my, my new career, to be this kind of overwhelmed and overwrought. So I started... Like many other people, just reading things. My, my, my partner is interesting. My partner is a, his background is in, in engineering and he's a, a patent lawyer, but his mm-hmm. cultural heritage is that he, uh, his, his parents immigrated from India. Mm-hmm. So he's not personally a meditator, but he had a book on his shelf okay. that was called the Bhagavad Gita for daily living um and so he you know and there's a whole another story about that about how as a child of immigrants from a culture which does meditate coming to the US and kind of acculturating and assimilating called forth this sort of you know putting to one side of all of that so he he definitely wasn't even reading this book but there it was on the shelf <laughs> and i read it and found in it uh, descriptions of of uh, you know one pointed meditation kind of mm. way of Calming and centering the mind specifically offered as a translation of practice for daily living in the Western context. So it was being offered by an Indian American immigrant whose name was Eknath Estoran, right? Mm. So he had written this book specifically to support mm. this translation and this kind of, um, you know, sharing of these practices to those of us in this culture. Mm. So, and I just named that because, you know, sometimes when we think about how we come to these practices, we can be concerned about appropriation. We can be mm-hmm. concerned about, you know, how we often don't name the often Asian heritage cultures, very diverse in and amongst themselves. But these, you know, cultures uh, that we are privileged to have received these teachings from. And to reckon, we'd often, you know, on often don't recognize the gift nature of how we, mm. you know, how they came to be here. And that there was this beautiful conscious interplay and interaction of cultures mm. that I think is again, part of the genius of the American experience, experiment. However difficult it is for us to uphold it. Yeah. So for me, it was reading first and uh, really experimenting at home and just feeling like, ooh, right away, like there's at least something here, not something easy for me to actually practice, but something that with practice I might, from through which, you know, with practice, I might experience some greater ability to calm myself and to support myself on this journey. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, that's actually how it started, you know, in my 20s, reading books, Trying to sort of steady myself and save myself in a certain way. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. I, you know, because I, even though I was raised in a Christian household, there was some way in which, um, probably because of the way I've been doing certain kinds of mind training and, and higher education for so long. Uh, I needed a way of entering into these practices that specifically spoke to how to cultivate, you know, and, and work with uh, the qualities of the mind and, you know, that really spoke about, you know, a kind of almost psych- psychology of well-being. Mm-hmm. That's what we would call it now. It wasn't called that. But in other words, something that straight Christianity in the way that I had been taught it did not so much explicitly offer. So this is how I ended up, I think, just feeling a little bit more drawn to these teachings as a support.
3: Cool. I'm proud of your uniqueness in this space because you've brought together two things that are so important in the world today. But I don't see them going together as that frequently. So I want to brag about you. Is is my point because you made this connection? And I'm wondering, sort of. So when did that career start? Where you brought you may had this. You had your personal awareness that wow a lot of these mindful techniques that that you're reading about really can help heal, uh, race, racial divides can really help with the inner work that we all can do. When did you Mm -hmm. start to form these connections? Because there is something really unique about that, that, that I associate with Rhonda McGee. Like there is like, (laughs) (laughs) like I think (laughs) Rhonda McGee when I think about that, and that is kind of special. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could kind of comment on that. Yeah.
2: Thank you. You know, yeah, I, it is a challenge sometimes to take that in, but yeah. I, but I, I work with with sort of you know really just with some with humility, being in some sort of right relationship with with this journey, mm. and so I thank you for the question, yeah, um, and also for the acknowledgement. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, I mean it. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. So I would just say that you know I it's hard to pinpoint any one moment, partly because you know. These are the sorts of things that just emerge in a way from one's own life experiences mm. and innate, I think, you know, passions, orientations, if you will. I, I think I was drawn always to more deeply trying to understand these divisions that we seem to have somehow <laughs> inherited and, invested in on so many different levels and we're Mm -hmm. constantly seemingly try to reinvest in (laughs) rearticulate you know
3: every generation
2: every generation right i
3: know i always think about that i always think about like can we ever reach a generation where we we just learn from our past like completely (laughs) like we're all you know we're like you know what we're done with all that crap.
2: (laughs) it seems like we have to work really really hard doesn't it Scott? to do that i mean because i i do think I have that same, I had the, this conversation with friends just this weekend. Like, wow, it looks like we just keep doing the same thing. There are thing certain over and over.
3: things, aspects of human nature. This is where I come in. As a psychologist, there are certain aspects of yes. human nature that make it likely that certain things will be created each generation. But there are also parts mm-hmm. of human nature that can allow us to override it, right? And that's where you come in.
2: That's where you come in. <laughs> you come well, in. And, and that is exactly where I come yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. Where we come in, I think those of us who somehow are. I don't even know how we get here. I don't know. But we're certainly drawn to question how we could do things differently. Mm. And to me, you know, just growing up, it was just so clear that there was a, so much unnecessary pain and division and missed opportunity for joy. Mm. <laughs> and And just like really feeling the miracle of what it means to be alive that's coming through all of this sort of acculturation to me, us versus them, you know, me versus you, and then us versus them. And then, uh, you know, fear and the kind of machinations around how I can have enough. And it just, you know, even as a very little girl, uh, these questions about who we are fundamentally as human beings, the sense that we were all one human family, which is something I think my grandmother sort of, conveyed in her interpretation. I like, your I like your yeah. what I, Everything <laughs> I've heard right. today.
1: I was like, I <laughs> right. like your grandma. <laughs>
2: exactly. We need a grandma like this. But like, there was always this sense that like, yeah, I mean, because we lived in a very segregated, mm. you know, neighborhood where I grew up. It was like all black folk, except, you know, a couple of white men who ran some stores that we would go to, right? Some mm. of the grocer, and, but otherwise, you know, um, the original neighborhood that I grew up in and my kindergarten completely all black. And and yet there was this sort of teaching that like, actually, we're all God's children. We're all yeah. really one family, you know, that's forgotten who we are. And that was something that resonated with me in a, it never felt like it was just a teaching. It never felt like it was some story, like a metaphor. <laughs> it always felt like, well, of course, you know, yeah. and you could just tell we're all so similar in every kind of way. Yeah. And yet we're so deeply trained for division. And so I think because of my own being drawn to that question, how can we both, both try and minimize the harm that comes from the legacies we've all, you know, grown up in and with? How can we minimize, you know, work for justice? In other words, but at the same time, keep our hearts open to the, you know, to these many missed opportunities for connection, keep our hearts open to what you and your writing, I think, call this sort of existential kind of <laughs> gratefulness to be a but, Yes. Existential like, gratitude. Right. Yes. Like we're yes. right. <laughs> you know, how can we keep that? Yes. Which, you know, again, to me always seemed like an innate, like, of course, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um how can we keep those? The, how can we do both those things at once? That's. The kind of a core koan, if you will, that I feel Mm. like my particular embodiment as a black, you know, racialized, as I call it, because, you know, on the one hand, I accept these identity terms and talk about them. And in some ways, you know, we're proud. But on the other hand, at the same time, know that these are just illusory ways we have of divining ourselves and others. And, you know, as much as we can keep clear that to use those terms is not to reduce our entire sense of ourselves to those terms.
1: Right.
2: It can help us with this sort of perspective that I think is, you know, what's called for when we, if we ever are going to find a way hmm. to not keep recreating the same pain and hierarchy and work up justice every single generation.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There are evolutionary ways of dividing. There are definitely ways of dividing. It likes st- People have made yeah. those choices intentionally yeah. to use that as one of the main yeah. dividing ways as opposed to the million other things about a human or yeah. individual that we could focus on. <laughs> you so know, true. so much of the beauty of, of the complexity of being human is just reduced to that that one yeah. thing. And so yeah, I, I hear you. You know, reading so much of your work, I mean, we could talk all day, right? I mean, <laughs> there's so much to cover. <laughs> you've you know, you've you've talked, you've had this this whole five part uh, you know, grounding, mm-hmm. I can go through the whole thing grounding yeah. let me just read them so it's on the record. I can can I do that it. at least yeah, no. because they're just I'm kind Thank of overwhelmed because there's so much I want the, our listeners <laughs> to hear about your work, but so you have a you have the kind of ground this this five these stages of the inner work process with mm-hmm. mindfulness with um grounding is part one, part yeah. two is seeing. Part three is being. That's my favorite. If I'm allowed, if I'm allowed to pick a favorite, I like yes, them all. Yes. I like them all three, being because and I resonate most because of my own work. You know, I really, I really mm-hmm. love the being versus doing and the existential yes. awareness, all that stuff. I love that. That's yes, my jam. Yes, yes, yes. Part four, is, yes. part four is doing. I was like, I don't know about that part. No, I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. And yet here
2: you are doing yeah, in yeah. your own way. And I'm doing. It. And I'm
3: doing it. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. And then. Part five. Although that this part five actually might be my favorite, Li- liberating, liberating. <laughs> exactly. Can we jump? Can we just jump right to the liberating? Because we don't yeah, we don't right have to- like five hours right to go <laughs> yeah, through all really, of And I really, and I really, I I do bring these up because I want our listeners to at least get it on the record for mm-hmm. them to hear, it and then for them to uh, want to go and read more of your work for sure. Yeah. I really recommend people to. But in mm-hmm. the interest of time, can you kind of tell yes. us? Um, you know, what does it take to get to that point of, of liberation and what, and how do you define liberation, you know, different, you know, through the centuries, through the course of human history, people have different thoughts and philosophies and what it means to be Mm -hmm. truly free and liberated. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And we absolutely can jump because even though I have, you know, articulated this sort of five part approach, and of course, by nature of a book, you start at the beginning, you end to me in common with people like you know, the, the venerable Thich Nhat Hanh who yes. passed recently. May he
3: rest in peace, yes.
2: May he rest in peace. Um,
3: may he rest in liberation.
2: <laughs> yeah, may he rest in liberation. And mm. may his teachings mm. continue as he would seem, as he taught so often, right? They are here, right? In a certain sense, he's not resting. <laughs> They're <Right. laughs> here. That's true. But, but, you know, that this idea of interbeing, each of those, you know, let's for now say aspects of the inner work that I describe in the book. Certainly each embeds all the others. And so, yes, of course, we can start with liberation. We can start with any of them mm. and see different aspects of the others within them. And certainly for me, I could well start any and in some, in a certain sense, do begin my own work at this point from this place of, let's say, liberation from some of the, mm, the ways I have been taught to think of my own um self so you see me already kind of drawing in the sort of a fist to sort yeah. of self contain, atomize. Right. i'm totally separate from you we can't you know we gotta struggle to understand each hearts other and then with defend borders. each other
3: hearts with borders <laughs> Hearts with borders, with right, borders right. Exactly.
2: yeah yeah with borders mm-hmm. so to me it's about that hearts beyond right and mm-hmm. it's and it's um to me liberation has really as you allude to it's so many different dimensions. Mm. But in this book I am talking about a kind of spiritual, if you will, you know, a, a kind of way of being in relationship to reality mm. that is more and more kind of open to noticing when we're getting caught mm. in ways of, um, of, of in limitation, in separation, in division, in reduction. It's really about the way that the practices of mindfulness, or just, if you will, kind of whatever the term is, we, any one of us may have for how it is that we work to disrupt our own delusions about who we are and how, how things are. Yeah. These practices for me can help. With, you know, to me, liberation is from what or for what? It's liberation from the temptation, the tendency toward isolation, towards a sense of self that to me is, is a delusion. This, this, it's, it's at least in part a delusion, right? There's a way in which, of course, we have our own agency and our own work to do and opportunities and we live and we love. And there's some reality to, to that. I think. As a kind of a metaphor for psychological development in a world in which everything is in interrelationship, it's important to notice when we're too focused on that sense of our bounded, ego-based, separate identity. And, you know, to be engaged in a kind of set of practices that can deliver us when we're getting stuck. Yeah. You know, so I keep coming back to this idea of. Stuckness and unstuckness,
1: <laughs> and like
2: o- you know, opening up to psychological flexibility, yeah. social flexibility, existential flexibility. Like the world is constantly, always changing. How can we, notwithstanding all these changes, notwithstanding demographic change, just to say one example, notwithstanding technological challenge, or you know, the the stress around resources that come from climate and other. You know issues that we are facing. Notwithstanding all of that, how do we, you know, notice the temptation to sort of uh, orient ourselves from a place of fear and anxiety, mm-hmm. and notice what we can do within ourselves to open up to a place of spacious realization that we have, we always have. Life itself affords us. Infinite options, infinite creative opportunities to respond to the challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, being in that liberating place is about, you know, the practices. And and I often do think of it again, it's like liberating, not liberation, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. how are we actively opening up whenever that temptation to close comes to all of us? And it can come to all of us. So with humility. This is like I'm in this too. you know I open the the news <laughs> uh, the the screens yeah. and see you know warmongering mongering and, and um, mm-hmm. saber rattling uh, at the border of Russia and Ukraine or whatever at the at the border of the the local school board that's arguing over a critical race something called critical race theory and, you know, parents of, Mm. you know, like those, these things, like anybody needs to be pitting parents against anything in the context of public school, but that's happening in our neighborhoods. So wherever we see these borderlines being redrawn, Mm. how are we in relationship to that? And how can we resist, you know, the bait, you know, not take the bait of making someone else an enemy? Mm-hmm. To me, every different way that we practice to minimize the likelihood that we do that from which so much human suffering and needless bloodshed has mm-hmm. flowed over human history over the eons. Everything we can do to minimize that is falls within the scope of what uh, I call Liberating practices mm-hmm. and mindfulness and compassion, and this existential gratitude, mm-hmm. this gratitude and being alive, yes. which I think, frankly, is kind of the core of mindfulness practice. Oh, I love that.
3: Honest. I love that. Yeah. I
2: really truly do. Maybe I don't so. think of that as a separate practice. That's being. Yeah.
3: That's the core of being. Yeah.
2: That's being. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it comes from grounding in a certain awareness that we, you know, life is selected for us. So, no yeah. accident here. And as we breathe, we are in connectedness with this thing we call the environment out there. But actually, it's always has been a part of our being, Mm. for which, again, seems to me the only right response is gratitude. And then from there, again, so many different, you know, opportunities to free ourselves Mm. can emerge if we keep remembering that these simple facts in our existence
3: Beautiful. There's something you said I want to just double click on, because I very much agree with it. And it's that liberation, I would phrase as a direction, not a destination, right? You never have become, because what do you, what's, what happens the moment after if you, like I'm liberated, then the moment after you're going to be like, wait, what do I do now with the rest of my life? (laughs) It's always a process, right? It's It's always, it's kind of like a North Star goal, right? I kind of view it like self-actualization. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. You know,
3: like Mm -hmm. we can kind of constantly make choices in the course of our day to choose growth, but, you know, we'll Mm -hmm. mess up because we're human, right? Like, it's not like, you know, you ever reach the liberation and you're like perfect (laughs) the rest of your life. Exactly. I like that you emphasize that. Something else I want to double click on from that chapter is the fact that you say bringing compassionate mindfulness into community-based engagement. What well, this is a common thread throughout the whole book. So even earlier in the book, mm-hmm. you say, "As I'll see from my, as you'll see from my story and those of others you'll meet here, healing takes place in community." So this yeah. is this is a theme you keep coming back to over and over mm-hmm. again. You you brought up the the, the critical race theory kind of uh, criticisms and those mm-hmm. discussions get so ugly regardless of where you stand on mm-hmm. I don't I want to, I want us to step above yeah. that for a second and not get into sure the yeah. of the debate I want Absolutely. to be, regard because I know that's where you're at with this so I, and mm-hmm. I love it regardless of where you stand those the no one's listening to anyone in the, in this right on, on <laughs> everyone's just yelling at each other and so how can we all rise above that using your amazing work of mindfulness of the community healing, And then truly, truly listening to each other, because this is the society I think we we both want. It's more of this active listening and less Mm -hmm. immediate knee-jerk response of, Mm -hmm. you're wrong,
2: I'm right. (laughs) Right, right, right. And I think of these things on multiple levels, right? Um, You know, there are things that we can do and we will do and we are doing even in this conversation, I would say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) Offer. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, models and ways of kind of practicing listening for understanding and connection.
1: Hmm.
2: And really, that's that could be his whole whole spiritual path.
1: Yeah,
2: I think. Right. And whole self-development path. How can I practice uh, listening and speaking for connection and understanding? What are the other goals that people have for listening and speaking, other than (laughs) right? Because to to practice for for understanding and connection is to invite inquiry. But what are the uh, why? uh, What else are we trying to do with some of our Mm -hmm. communications? Are we trying to understand, or or are we trying to experience power over in some way?
3: Be right. Uh,
2: Yeah. uh, Be right, but also come across as right. But again, even more so now, the systemic collective piece. All of this is happening within a broader environment. It's not just the interpersonal dynamics, mm-hmm. which are so important and which we, you know, do, deal, we recognize and we take agency for and all. Mm-hmm. Yes. And right. Mm-hmm. It we, we live in a world, mm-hmm. you know, people are making money, how, making aggrandizing and developing and building up power through the manipulations of our emotions, our, you know, our Communities, frankly, these. So, so in other words, we're up against a lot right now when it comes mm-hmm. to this. Being willing to see more clearly, more of what we're up against. That it isn't just, I'm not skillful or I'm not being the best person. It is that. It is part of, you know, it's partly like, <laughs> can I be more skillful? <laughs> can I listen a little bit more with a little less judgment? like a little less judgment. And can I um, put myself in the shoes of the other a little bit more? But it is also, you know, recognizing that we, on the one hand, have these beautiful, lovely devices Mm. around us that have enabled so much, including us connecting and sharing more richly in the world during these pandemic times. Beautiful. Absolutely. Where would I be without these devices? And the way they have been developed and promulgated, we all now know, Churn's division, right, is is kind of co is you know ha- has as a as a profit model yep. the narrowing of minds and the kind of the reinforcing of you know those things that trigger intense emotion, including fear, anxiety, that can that lead to this othering. Mm. So, so there is, you know, so this is where, you know, that strong back, that sort of, you know, how do we act in wise relationship, not only to how our own personal conditionings, our upbringings, right? The -hmm. things we've learned, the things we haven't prefigure us to be open or not to what we are hearing from another person. That's really important. And that's, you know, we have some control over that. We must make the most of that, Mm -hmm. And I think how we relate to technology and media and the different ways that that organized efforts are arrayed at kind of keeping us diluted and keeping us at you know loggerheads and at pointed spears at each other. I mean, this is not just happening. It's not just natural. <laughs> mm. So how do how are we in wise relationship with the whole array from like my personal, what's happening interpersonally? how and where we meet the mm. structures for that cuz all of those things are part of the i would say the ecology for justice and for connection that we work with like so bringing awareness to every dimension the personal the interpersonal the sort of social where we meet and how who's in charge mm-hmm. and right how we set up the rooms all of these things matter but also this you know really hard hmm, First world, high level, edgy problem of existential crisis of how we relate with technology more wisely.
3: Yes.
1: All of
2: that has to be brought into our conversation. And I think we can, though, with compassion.
3: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And, and I would yes and this and say that I see the media, mainstream media, is a big problem um, with this, with the silos of the very, you know, like CNN versus Fox News, for instance. Like, you couldn't talk about two completely different worlds with two completely different worldviews about about humanity. We need like a different, like, I want to opt out of all of that and have like a, a, a one, a oneness news <laughs> channel. Something that that takes into account the principles you put forward in your um, liberation, liberating, sorry, liberating chapter, Um, things like expanding the circle of compassion, deepening healing for ourselves, contemplating all humanity as one family deepening the path of wisdom where's that in the news cycle <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly where's where's the P- pr you, campaign for, for all for that, that good stuff right that. it is seriously well there's I mean, no money in it you know, is it all about
1: money there's no, bad, what no it money is?
2: and power over Ugh. there's no money and power over right as opposed to power with 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 or, right why power. is about
3: money equally as much money and power with How do we have that world?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is at least some. And I think that's part of that. That is a part of the reality. Like, you know, we are finding ways to amplify more of the good. But it is true. I mean, some of it isn't saleable and some of it will never be, you know, something that we can profiteer off of and shouldn't be. Right, frankly, and this is radically counterculture for me to talk about like <laughs> things we should be engaged in that are that will never make us money and shouldn't be about making us money.
3: Yeah, that's not the
1: but I line. think
2: that's yeah. yeah, it's it's um, you know, again, this is where again, my heart I have to put a handle with the heart
1: because I'll do it too. We are, we'll yeah,
2: it. you know, we, you know, it's it's, it's painful, <laughs> it is. It is
3: well, so to to, to both. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. Oh,
2: we're all suffering. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. we're all suffering.
3: I know. In different I know.
2: ways, right? But I didn't In mean different to ways.
3: You. Yeah.
2: Oh no no no! I don't. I I, I take this as like. Okay. Good. Yeah. You know, like healthy. Yeah. You like inspire. Yeah, you inspire. Yeah, you we're inspiring yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You're yeah, inspiring yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and I, you know, we could, we could talk about this forever and hopefully Mm. in a certain way we will, Mm. (laughs) if not explicitly, but just know we're in conversation wherever we are about these, these really, really important aspects of, in a way, the dilemma. So, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, because I'm a law, have been trained in a law, Mm. in law and worked as a law professor for so many years, you know, I am kind of aware that, again, life, it's a law professor and mindfulness teacher. Life is multidimensional. Hmm. My existence is multidimensional. It's like it's I can at the same time be aware of the oneness that interconnects us all, us as you know, us and as being part of one family already, who all belong already, um, and don't really have to struggle for that for that. And at the same time recognize that for us to work together in the world to minimize the harm that we do as we go forth, you know, seeking to make the most of our own agency in, in the social realm. We do need agreements. We do need ways of working together. And we do need ways of trying to find collective consensus mm. or uh, nonviolent ways of, of resolving conflict. Here, here. So, yeah, so there are, it's, it's, I think, therefore, I, I, I'm, I'm always trying to be a student of, you know, political science and philosophy. And if someone could show me a more effective way for human beings to come together than the hard work of trying to, despite our different backgrounds, despite our different languages, despite our different cultures, find the common ground mm. in any conversation, in any community uh Find the capacity to resolve a conflict peacefully for today, mm. provisionally. We know we may come back again, but for today we've we've, we've agreed this is how we resolve will resolve it, and we'll live another day to meet and and share and maybe come to another result. In other words, what we have called the the rule of law and democracy, mm. as opposed to every other kind of way, mm. <laughs> seems. To be the best approximation we can find for a kind of public frame for discourse that, that allows for, you know, more free expression, more of these liberating practices, right? More of us to kind of find our own way. And so while, you know, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, democratic rule of law activity, political realm is not (laughs) necessarily the ultimate When I think about, you know, just the basic challenge of like living with neighbors who come from different parts of the world, and oh, it helps to have rules by which we we drive on this side of the road and not that side, and we stop at the (laughs) stop sign. I mean, just basic things that keep us from killing each other. Yeah, to kind of arrive at those kinds of that those
3: or hating each other. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. We don't need the H- to have a provisional consensus. Yeah. These ways of coming at provisional consensus. That's what, to me, law has always been, mm. you know, at its highest and best is seeking to help us do. And so we have to keep investing in the inputs of the ability to, to use language as bad as it is. Right. Yeah. As manipulable as it is. But nevertheless, we have to resist that cynicism that says, you know, words don't matter and trying to talk to each other and listen to each other. is just, you know, never will work. I, I think we have to pull ourselves back always. The temptation is to pull ourselves back from the the kind of abyss of cynicism that can come from this kind of awareness of the infallibility of language or, you know, the kind of, indeterminacy of it. Like, you know, the word dignity can mean anything. I can, you know, I can use it. Hitler could use it. I mean, it's like, mm. nevertheless, if we can come together around the circles, mm. around the tables, the campfires in our, if starting at home, in our community, in our schools with humility, with love, if you will and say that word in this podcast, right. With, Please do. with love, with care. Yeah. Then, you know, um, All we can do is keep meeting each other around that campfire with with some commitment to care and figuring out what language works for today and maybe use another language tomorrow, but not missing that. We're just human beings struggling to find what works to keep us from killing each other, frankly, Mm. and keep us um, thriving in the abundant appreciation of the gift of this life.
3: Mm. Beautiful. I'm going to end quoting you. You say, I have suffered enough, you have suffered enough, we have all suffered enough. May we bring ourselves into continual conversation with one another and with the racial injustices here and now, ending the suffering and making things right. One moment, one risk, one luminous reconnection at a time. I'm really glad to make a connection with you. I look forward to a reconnection <laughs> another another time. Uh, thanks for the real important work you're doing in this world. I um, really support it. And thanks for being on my show today
2: oh my gosh thank you scott um same same i reflect that all back to you Mm -hmm. thank you for your really important work and it's an honor to be in this conversation with you yes may it continue in some ways explicit and implicit from here heck yeah thanks rhonda (laughs) thank you
3: thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
0: Infinity presents a new chapter in Luxury,